Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. As you've come to rely on Deep State Radio's in-depth expert analysis, we hope that you will consider becoming a member to support our efforts. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MARCH2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, coming to you from somewhere in the Washington, D.C. area. We've got Rosa Brooks. Rosa, of course, holds the Scott Ginsburg Chair in Law and Policy at Georgetown University Law Center. How are you doing today, Rosa? Hi, David. I'm well. And we are joined by our old friend and regular former Thursday co-host, Brian Goodman, who is the Anne and Joel Ehrenkrantz Professor of Law at NYU Law School and founding co-editor-in-chief of Just Security. How are you today, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. And a new guest today for us, Rebecca Hamilton, is a former lawyer in the Prosecutorial Division of the International Criminal Court and currently serves as an Associate Professor of Law at American University's Washington College of Law. Hi, Rebecca. Hi there. Very nice of you to join us. So, may have gathered from the fact that we have this great collection of of lawyers here that I want to talk a little bit about this issue that we hear a lot about. There is actually some debate about how to tackle it with regard to war crimes in Ukraine. And contrary to traditional form, I'm going to start with you, Rosa. The other day, the president of the United States called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. And he got a lot of flack for this from some people saying, oh, you shouldn't call him a war criminal. Richard Haas said something to the effect of, we should set that aside, you know, because it might make it harder for Putin to, uh, you know, buy into a settlement. You know, we should, you know, and what if he uses chemical weapons? What do we call him then that's worse? What do you think all that, Rosa? Yeah, I actually had mixed feelings myself. On the one hand, uh, do I think that Putin bears moral and legal responsibility for what are almost certainly war crimes? Yes, I do. At least based on what is publicly available, it sure looks that way. My only ambivalence came because I I do worry about how do we give Putin off-ramps? Are there any off-ramps for him? I mean, this is the the sort of classic debate that we, we have over and over and over again about justice. Are justice and peace inconsistent in some settings? Do you need to prioritize one over the other? So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I also had this slight worry of like, oh, Joe, don't 
be so mean to Putin right now because we don't want him to lob a nuke anywhere. So let's be careful, which is completely separate from, from whether I think he's a war criminal, which which clearly he is. Um, and I just I don't know. We don't know which direction does that push? Does does labeling does does having the president of the United States and various other international leaders and the prosecutor of the ICC, the International Criminal Court, saying we think war crimes are being committed in Ukraine, does that increase pressure on Putin to talk and consider reducing the number of war crimes he appears to be committing? Or does that just make him double down? I, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm looking forward to hearing what, what Ryan and Rebecca think. Well, let me start with Rebecca. What do you think? So I'm not convinced that what the president of the United States says or doesn't say in terms of a description of, of President Putin right now is what's going to move the needle. Um, I think that Putin's actions have put him into the position that he's in. And however we describe that is not sort of the most significant thing at this moment. What the president of the United States and other world leaders actually do is a different question. And I think, you know, as we move into a conversation about what are the pressure points here that could get us to a place that ends this war more quickly, then I'm probably less focused on, on verbal description and more concerned about what are sanctions looking like, what is diplomatic isolation or inclusion looking like. Those are the things that I'm tracking. What about you, Ryan? What did you think of that? So I also agree with Beck on what the president says not having that much impact, and it's more the impact of what Putin's own actions are. Um, they kind of create an inevitable effect. I also do think at the same time that the administration has been too reluctant to say that there's evidence of war crimes, at least initially. They've kind of come around to that. But it suggests that the administration is tying themselves up in knots, as they have in the past, with whether or not they will ever say, based on like public reporting, there's evidence of war crimes. And I, my sense is that some of that is because some U.S. officials are worried about the boomerang effect of that on the United States down the line. I think that's really very wrongheaded in terms of what the principles want, which is to call Putin and the Russian military forces out for what they're doing. And so to be tied up in knots about that, I think, is not serving the interests of the leadership of our government. And then I do also worry about, you know, the off-ramps. Just one scenario that I do think it's worth thinking about. Uh, we had a piece at Just Security by David Bosco on this, which is that the Security Council is a potential off-ramp. The International Criminal Court has been set in motion right now, and it creates some of these perverse unintended consequences potentially for diplomacy to do its work uh, for the very reasons that uh, you had uh, outlined, David. But even in the International Criminal Court statute, there is a provision for the UN Security Council to suspend investigations or prosecutions, and they can renew that suspension. So I do think down, far down the line, we might see that as one of the off-ramps. And you know, if Putin wants to make a deal and the United States is good with making that deal, so they want diplomacy, then the rest of the Security Council will definitely come around, I would think, to something like that. So it's not at all unrealistic to think of that as a prospect. And it's good to then think about that now, whereby we can say, let's go full steam ahead in a certain sense with the investigation at the International Criminal Court level, because we know that this is something that is in the future. So Rosa, don't you think there's something of a moral hazard when you say to a war criminal, well, if you commit enough war crimes, we're going to want to end the war 
sufficiently eagerly that we'll not actually charge you with war crimes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a moral hazard uh, in in the existence of nuclear weapons, right? I mean, that's the this is the nature of mutual assured destruction. Uh, you know, that it's got this sort of horrible logic of whoever is willing to sacrifice the most people can essentially browbeat everybody else into doing what they want. Because if Putin doesn't care about civilians in Ukraine, if Putin doesn't care about committing war crimes, if Putin doesn't care about even potentially using a tactical nuclear weapon, those countries that do care are are kind of, uh, you know, we're in a very rough spot. It's very hard to know what to respond. I mean, and we all would love, I would love to see Putin behind bars. That would be nice. But I also would love to see the world not get into World War III and, you know, not have a nuclear war. And obviously that's something that we have to care about, even if we don't want to. I do think that regardless of what happens, and this is something I know Rebecca has been doing some work on in terms of user generated evidence from you know, ordinary Ukrainian cell phones and so forth. I do think that the ICC investigation is really important. Gathering that evidentiary material before it gets lost. I do think that, you know, I hope that U.S. intelligence agencies and other friendly intelligence agencies are, are gathering and saving that kind of information because to whatever extent a possible future legal jeopardy or public embarrassment in terms of war crimes might sway Putin or others in his inner circle down the road, having that evidence is, is going to be really vital. Let's pick up on that. Well, I will circle back in a little while and we'll talk again about Putin's own culpability. I do want to say parenthetically that um, Rebecca used the term pressure points instead of off ramps. I'm more sympathetic to framing things that way, since uh, you know I, I do think there are areas where we we have some leverage, and and he did do some things wrong, and should be held accountable to the extent possible. But you have written thought about this issue of user generated uh, evidence, and of course, people have talked about this as the TikTok war, and it's not the first war in which social media played a big role, but. I remember once having a conversation with somebody at the U.S. Holocaust Museum and talking about, you know, in an era where everybody has a smartphone, everybody's a witness. And that therefore, this could, should have a positive effect in terms of identifying atrocities, but also discouraging them. What's your take on where we stand on that, Rebecca? This is going to sound counterintuitive, but I, but I think in some ways it's more of a double-edged sword than people recognize. So to lay out positive case, and I compare this to the experience of when at the International Criminal Court, we had the investigation of atrocities in Darfur and investigators could not get into the country. Okay? So in that scenario, having user-generated evidence, having people who were on the ground documenting what was around them would have been really helpful. And similarly, you know, it's not even when you're just barred from entering the country, but just a conflict zone in general. There's huge risks of destruction of evidence and deterioration of evidence. And so having people do that documentation in real time can be helpful. Here's the downside, though. These are people, for the most part, who are themselves trying to survive in the midst of atrocity. They are not professional war crimes investigators. And the things that they point their camera towards, unless they have been contacted by an NGO that is focusing on documentation, the things that they're filming, there's quite often a mismatch between that and what an international criminal law investigator needs. 
in particular, people will film the moment of impact of the explosion, the injuries, the dead bodies, the, the things that as a human being, of course, you are going to be drawn to in the moment. As an investigator, it's the difficult part is, is not establishing what we'd call the crime base. It's not showing that these horrible acts happen. The difficult part is linking that to someone who can be held criminally responsible. And this linkage evidence, you really need to be, it needs to be explained to you to, to think about in the moment, to pay attention to the insignia on the uniform, to the plate that's on the vehicle, to the number that's on the bomb casing, the things that are useful for war crimes investigators. And if that doesn't happen, then we end up with a situation and we've ended up with it in Syria where there is so much information that you create a second order problem for investigators of having to sort through hours and hours of footage, much of which may in fact be irrelevant from a criminal law prosecution standpoint, although extremely relevant to the victims and survivors and as, as documentation and, and memorialization and so on. So quick follow-up on that before I get to Ryan. Is there an effort to educate people on the ground? Is it effective? Have you seen positive results? Yeah, that's the good news there is. And I think Syria was a real, I mean, Syria was so many things and most of all for the Syrians themselves, but for this community of people doing citizen-based documentation, there was a huge learning curve that happened across the course of the Syrian crisis and, and continues to this day in terms of doing that outreach with civil society organizations on the ground, including to ensure that people are not taking unnecessary risks for documentation that is not actually going to help achieve accountability. Flagging Witness in particular has done amazing work just this week in, in getting their field guides translated into Ukrainian and into Russian that I think would be really helpful for people on the ground. Is that a website? Yeah, I'll send you the link. Good. We'll, we'll post it with the, with the podcast. Ryan, of course, we're assuming a, a lot here. We've, we've uh, all four of us made the assumption that war crimes are taking place here. And we've heard a lot of the kind of off-the-cuff analysis of television broadcasters saying, well, if you attack civilians, that's a war crime. Or if you do X, that's a war crime. What's the case here, Ryan? To make the case that the war crime is being committed, the ones that we're generally thinking about in terms of targeting and attacks on civilians, you have to prove essentially that the attackers were deliberately targeting civilians, so it wasn't accidental, or that they were acting recklessly so that they knew that that would be the result, even though it wasn't their intent to deliberately hit the civilians. And there's also questions about if it's disproportionate, but most of these are issues of, it looks like deliberate targeting of hospitals, maternity wards, schools, uh, civilian shelters. But then that's the hard part, part of what Beck was getting at, which is how do you prove intent? And that's where many lay people watching these videos will say, well, obviously it's a war crime. They hit a hospital. But to prove it in court, and this is also what can sometimes hang up the US government from saying there are war crimes that are being committed is you have to establish the intent. Now, you could start to infer the intent from things that happened in Syria, such as multiple hits on hospitals, individual hospitals hit multiple times over the course of the day or course of an hour. So they knew what they're hitting. They came back and hit it again and again. And all of that happening within a very short period of time. So multiple hospitals hit by the Russian 
Air Force over a short period of time, it seemed like it was, it's, you know, the inference there is that it's intentional. But all that said, there are also kind of what I think of as very clear cases of war crimes being committed in Ukraine. The use of cluster munitions in a heavily populated area, game over. It is an indiscriminate weapon, meaning it cannot select between military targets and civilians to use that kind of munition in a densely populated civilian area is a war crime. There's jurisprudence by international criminal tribunals on that very subject. Apprehending civilians and deporting them to remote locations in Russia, war crime, crime against humanity, a predicate for the crimes against humanity, and probably much more easily proven by a prosecutor in terms of who exactly is responsible, because that's an official policy. Uh, just like use of cluster munitions is a, obviously an official policy. So I think there are actually like there's low hanging fruit, obvious war crimes, and then the other pieces of it, we can either try to establish based on their patterns or when there's more evidence. And just one last part, and that is that the Russians apparently, through much of their incompetence, are not communicating over encrypted channels and they're being intercepted. So we, I, I can only imagine what US and other government intelligence agencies are collecting, let alone what Bellingcat and others are collecting, it's not going to be at the end of the day, I think, hard to prove criminal cases. It's going to be hard to apprehend perpetrators. Rosa, one of the elements of all this thing is, of course, there is an outcry in the United States about war crimes, crimes against humanities, uh, civilians being directed along humanitarian corridors, and then those humanitarian corridors being attacked cluster munitions, as Ryan has talked about, thermobaric weapons, as people have talked about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, in the midst of all of this, we have that the, the mechanism, the international mechanism for dealing with all of this, the ICC, the U.S. isn't a member. The U.S. has never been a member, as far as I can tell. The Clinton administration was the first to avoid getting, becoming a, a country member of the International Criminal Court. Can you talk a little bit about the background of that and and what your view of it is? Yeah, this is a long and uh, fairly embarrassing story for the United States. Um, President Clinton made every showed every sign that the U.S. would become a party to the treaty that established the International Criminal Court until very, very late in the game, when at the, at the last minute, the U.S. refused to vote for the treaty. And everybody was pretty shocked, in part because the U.S. had played such an active role in negotiating uh, the terms of that treaty and indeed went on to play such an active role in, in negotiating the definitions of various crimes and so forth. As one of his final acts uh, before he stepped down, after he was already a lame duck, uh, President Clinton signed the Rome Treaty when Bush came in and John Bolton was working for George W. Bush. He enthusiastically stated that he was unsigning the Rome Treaty and that Clinton's signature meant nothing whatsoever. And signing is not the same as, in legal, in legal terms, not the same as becoming a formal party to a treaty, but it does carry with it some legal obligations to not undermine the very purpose of the treaty itself. So the, the reason the U.S. was always so nervous about this goes to what Ryan was saying a moment ago about uh, what's the difference between a war crime and a tragic accident that you know, you couldn't have prevented. Obviously, the U.S. has been engaged in numerous military conflicts from the time of the Clinton administration until now. No question about it. There have been many incidents in which U.S. military forces 
have killed many civilians and have fired upon civilian targets. Obviously, the U.S. military says we weren't targeting those civilians. We didn't make a decision. We didn't say, let's kill some civilians. We had poor information or we had a targeting error or people ended up coming at the last minute who we didn't expect to come there. And that's the difference, right, between a a war crime and just a, a tragic accident that results in civilian deaths, even though they weren't targeted. This hasn't stopped many people, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., from accusing U.S. forces of committing war crimes. And the U.S. government has been very, very skittish about the idea of letting any kind of international body have jurisdiction over that determination because the U.S. government has really not trusted an international criminal court to be entirely objective. Russia has felt the same way, uh, as have a number of other countries uh, which have declined to join. That being said, uh, the U.S., at least during Obama's administration and and now with President Biden, has provided various forms of uh, support and assistance to the court during Republican administrations, uh, it's, I, I won't even go into it, it's just too embarrassing, various forms of extreme, overt, and ridiculous hostility against the international court. But, but we're now kind of in a, in a quandary again, because as with, as with Syria, we would love to see the international court take certain actions, but we're not in a very good position to, to ask for much of anything, uh, given our own failure to consistently be a constructive part of the discussion of the court. Yeah, and also we may have committed war crimes. And also we may have committed war crimes. And we are not willing to allow a, an international court to make that determination. So, Rebecca, you, you worked there and, and, you know, we've got the U.S., which is an important country, not participating. Other countries not participating. Hard to make these cases. Hard to hold people accountable, because if we convicted Vladimir Putin, He's not going to cooperate with this in any way. Is this whole idea of war crimes tribunals, this whole idea of the International Criminal Court, kind of a a paper or toothless tiger? It can be, but it doesn't have to be. So one of the things about the International Criminal Court and, and any of these international tribunals is they can really only be as strong as states are willing to help them be. Now, it's often said that the ICC does not have its own police force. It can't execute its own arrest warrants. So it relies on political will from nation states. There are moments, and I think we're in one of them at the moment, where political will seems to be in in surprising abundance. And it's in those moments that we see these forward movements in the sort of long historical quest for some kind of justice and accountability when atrocities are committed. And I think just because it's not a consistent move forward, it feels like one step forward and two steps back a lot of the time. But over the long arc of history, I think this makes a difference. And the more that the court can seize the moments where there is a political window to support the work that they're doing, they then get to build the record, make the case, not just to the people in the situation, but also to other militaries around the world as they're looking prospectively, that justice is a real possibility. So I know this is not what Rebecca was saying. I'm not going to, I'm not putting these words in her mouth, Ryan, but just to get a reaction, I suspect there will be people listening to that saying, 
oh, well, the way you get political will is you commit war crimes against white people. And if you don't commit war crimes against white people, you're going to get away with that. There's no political will among the rich and important countries of the world. How do you respond to that, Ryan? There is a lot of truth to that. And you don't get the media attention. There's so many uh, forms of power that are not at one's disposal. And the, you know, the constant media cycle is just not the ones we've seen when it's people of color who are being blown to bits and their lives destroyed. And this kind of sustained, we're now entering, we're about to hit the fourth week, sustained media attention to it. So the sustained political will, et cetera. And, and the fact that this is happening inside Europe um, is why there is this form of political will. You know, as people used to also say, you know, there was a tribunal set up for Rwanda for the genocide there. That would maybe never have happened, but for the fact that just a few years earlier, there was a tribunal set up for the former Yugoslavia. And it was just, it would be so hypocritical, so obviously hypocritical if they didn't also, the, they being the, the powers that be, the, the Security Council set one up for Rwanda. Otherwise, it would have gone by the wayside, essentially. So I do think that that is a concern. I do think, though, this is a very powerful state that might be held to account. And that's maybe the optimistic take here, that even if it is selective in a certain sense, this is a good place to start, or as much traction as might be gained here. Imagine you know, setting up the, an aggression tribunal. That could, therefore, constrain other actors in the future in so many different ways uh, in terms of setting the norm and, and having the institutions be more flexible in the ability to respond. I do worry a lot, and I think it's a, it's a valid uh, critique in a certain sense in terms of how the corridors of power are reacting to this particular moment. I think Ryan is absolutely right. But another criticism that, of course, has been leveled at the International Criminal Court over the years is, is that when it comes to prosecutions and trials, that it's become an international criminal court, essentially for Africa and a few other places, that it's precisely conflicts that take place uh, in Africa and the Middle East that do not involve major Western powers that have led to prosecutions of mostly non-Western actors. And, you know, you can read that in multiple different ways, but all of them boil down to the same thing Ryan said with an interesting new twist, right? One is that it's, it's relatively easy. It's not easy, but relatively easier for the International Criminal Court to go after states that are less powerful, less wealthy, less powerful, uh, have less ability to throw all kinds of roadblocks in the way of investigations and, and prosecutions. Another reason is you could argue that precisely because there hasn't been as much sustained media attention to doing something to stop the conflict that the sort of sop to Western guilt is, well, after the fact, or maybe even during the fact, we're going to prosecute somebody and then we can feel okay about the fact that we didn't actually do anything to stop the conflict. You know, the, the interesting twist right now, of course, is that I think it's absolutely true that the fact that Ukraine is a wealthier white country relatively speaking, has an impact on the degree of media coverage. But of course, the irony is that we, we can't stop the conflict for exactly the same reason, that it involves, it involves powerful states rather than powerless states. If we were not talking about Russia, you know, if we were talking about you know, Democratic Republic of Congo or something, you bet we would have intervened militarily, I think, at this point, if they were going after the Ukrainians, right? So I think it, it can cut in all sorts of different directions. I think, I think the, 
that that root cause of that inconsistent response, uh, uh, a response that is very much colored by racist attitudes uh, in the Western press, is interestingly leading us in some ways here to a very re- different result than you might expect. Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, I I don't want to get into you know stand up on a soapbox here, but I do think it's important in the interests of covering the issue completely to note that there are all these other cases that are occurring in the world. And, you know, you look at Rwanda, but, you know, there were estimates of the casualties in Iraq that were the same as the number of people who died in Rwanda. And there were some that were lower, but it was, you know, an order of magnitude. It was a similar situation. And of course, we've seen the situation in Syria. And and we now have, you know, people doing, you know, public receptions for Assad. And Putin was involved in some of the horrors that were involved there. And Simultaneously, right now, you have a war in Ethiopia. You have a potential genocide against the Rohingyas. You've got a situation in Xinjiang province. You've got the situation in Yemen that's been going on for years and years and years. And all of those are cases where these cases can be made and are not getting that attention. I want to say one very brief thing here. I don't want to take too much time with it, but I, I say this every couple, three, four months because it's relevant. And that is another division of our tiny little media company produces a podcast for the UAE. And we have to, as a result of that file, Farah, we don't lobby or do anything. We just produce the podcast. We don't even pick the guests or the content. We haven't done it in a while. But because we have taken money from them and we have talked today about something like Yemen, I really think it's important that we disclose that we have done that. And all we focus on are things like culture and women's empowerment and science and technology. We, we don't get into these other issues. As I say, we don't advocate for anything. And it doesn't color what we do, because clearly we just brought up Yemen here. They play a role in that. We are strongly opposed to that. And, and we've expressed many, many other things that underscore that we are completely editorially independent here. But part of editorial independence is transparency, and I just wanted to underscore that. Beyond that, this is the time we normally take a break in these broadcasts, and we say goodbye to the folks who are joining us from the general public and say to them, you know, you're going to miss the next, you know, third of this broadcast because you're not a member. And if you go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership, you can become a member. And lots more people are becoming members now because they don't want to miss this. And I encourage you to do the same. It's real simple, and it's roughly the same as a price of a latte per month. And I think this is worth a latte per month. Uh, You're probably having too many lattes anyway. So I encourage you to do that until you do that. Thanks very much. For those of you who are members, of course, hang on. We're going to keep going. Wake up each morning to our newest podcast, The Ukraine Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the latest news, developments, and the stories we're following on the Ukraine crisis from news sources from around the world. The podcast is available now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and members receive access to the show via private member feed.